Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. This week is episode number 48. Hard to believe it, two more to go to that big 5-0. Um, and we're also actually coming up to our, our one-year anniversary. Wherever you're listening to this at the moment, whether it's in the day, the night, the morning, the evening, the afternoon, thank you very much for taking time out to listen to us. We really appreciate it. And if this is your first time listening to the Inside View podcast, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. Please do rate, review, tell your friends, family, whoever may know about the podcast. It means a huge amount to us. Big shout out as well to our sponsors, GOG Sports and Vintry Harbour Asset Management for their continued support. We really appreciate it, guys, and without you, it wouldn't be possible. It's now time to bring on this week's guest, and I'm delighted to be joined by former Dublin Underage star, All Ireland winner, and author Shane Carty. He earned a call-up to Dublin senior side while he was still in school and in 2013 he was part of the victorious Dublin team who won the Sam Maguire. While the outside world would have viewed Shane's perhaps as being idyllic, internally is quite the opposite. Shane underwent a difficult period where he struggled with mental health that took a huge toll on his body. There's no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. So hi Shane, um, firstly thanks very much for taking time out of your, your busy schedule, I know you have a lot on over the last couple of weeks um, to come on Inside View podcast, how are you keeping? Good Jamie, good, um, thanks very much for having me on and um, as I said yeah it's been it's been a busy time, really really busy um, but in a good way you know it's it's been great um, from all aspects in terms of um, kind of speaking to all different walks of life, uh, young and old and, and it's great, I think that's that's what my story I hope my story has been doing for people and um, affecting people from all walks of life, all ages. Um, and it's, it's been great. It's been great. So I've been kept busy and will continue to do so over the next while, I reckon. Good, good, good. And it's, um, I suppose, you know, when you put yourself out there like that, um, you're always kind of putting yourself out there. Typical, there's always people, you know, going to be knocking you down. It's something we'll, we'll delve into soon. But yeah. um, how... How, how frightening was the whole experience? You know, I know it's grand. It was probably okay and enjoyable writing the book. Obviously mm-hmm. tough, but those couple of days when it was, you know, published and it was out there in the public domain, what was yeah. the emotions like? Yeah, and, and funny enough, you say that as in like, it was one of those where it was only, I think the week, the week prior to the release of the book um, at a couple of mornings, I, I got sick in a couple of mornings just out of pure kind of, anxiety and just nerves and apprehension of like how is this going to go how is it going to be perceived and um are going to people like it you know am i going to get trolled online and, and all these different bits and pieces you know so of course the whole kind of thing came to the fore just a week before and it's people were asking me it's like did you not realize what you're doing for the last year and a half writing the book you know um and i was just saying like i was in autopilot but but as i say it was just that kind of realization coming closer to it um but now what once the release of the book is it, it was all said and done. Huge overwhelming, you, you know, from the response. And of course, it, we'll probably delve into it a little later in terms of a, a couple of negative, um, you would say, people who are unhappy in their life, unfortunately, that feel the need to possibly say something to that end. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's one of those where I always hear people saying, you know, you, you just ignore it, it doesn't bother you. And people are lying when they say that. It does bother you. You know, you look at 100 positive comments and there's one little negative there and you're looking at it, but I guess it's for me dealing with it in in my kind of way and and how I know how to deal with it is kind of just to speak to people and just air it out there and look I'm a bit stressed this this was said to me this was you know mentioned all that kind of crap so um, 
yeah, whole conveyor belt of emotions, I would say, over the last couple of months. Yeah, that, like that's something as well. I, I, I would like you. It, it, annoy, it, it annoys me the fact that they say, look, oh, don't even affect you, but sure, it's, it's easier said than done. You know, you need to kind of really digest yeah. it in your own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, as in, like, for, for everyone, it's different. And, and of course, from my side, it was a bit. Um, it was a bit shocking that, that it was mentioned in those quarters in terms of I was putting my head above water in, in the hope that, you know, my sole reason for doing this is to save a life. Um, I'm not telling people to buy the book. I'm not telling them to like it, dislike it, you know, buy it at your own discretion and take what you want from it. Um, and if you're unhappy, you know, so be it. And, and that's the thing, I can't please everyone. I have to realise that. And um, unfortunately, there is people out there like that. But again, it's kind of just learning as you go along how to deal with it um, and kind of bringing it back for me anyway. It's been bringing it back to the simplistic kind of thing of who matters to me, who's in my circle, you know, my, my friends, my close friends, my family, those closest to me are those that are going to support me and have been supporting me over these kind of last number of months and even years prior to that. Everyone's, you know, everyone's going through a difficult time at the moment. Um, so I'd like to kind of maybe delve into how you're uh, dealing with it. Um, and I suppose before we get to that, you know, everyone... I suppose, in my opinion, anyway, look, everyone has physical health, like me, you, everyone has physical health, but and everyone has mental health. But I suppose sometimes mental health can, you know, can deteriorate or it can be excellent. Um, but I say it's you know, I suppose it's the awareness around there at the moment that look, physical health, you know what to do, um, eat healthy, etc., go for a walk, whatever. But it's probably the awareness around the mental health aspect of it. And how how do you feel that is at the moment and you would say from we, we'd be the same age you know from our era if you sound old now but up to yeah, yeah. you know up, up to nowadays do you think things have improved i i think so in terms of if i was coming across from the point of view of looking back at you know when my journey would have began in 2012 and right the way through to 2014 it simply wasn't spoken about you know from um a school mm-hmm. context where there was no well-being workshops where you know, well, what's going on now, there's no, you know, guest speakers coming in speaking about mental health or stories. So it simply wasn't spoken about. Um, and even from an older kind of generation point of view, it absolutely wasn't, you know, it was very much stigmatized. And I think that's where it's kind of come across over the last number of years and how it's changed, I should say, is where I think younger generation are absolutely giving it more lip service than possibly our parents once did. Um, and I think it's a great way um, to, to kind of be thinking and having that kind of conversation now that there's so many people coming out with different stories and different aspects of their life and speaking about the difficulties. And I think it's putting it on a kind of an even kind of kill with your physical health. It should be, you know, being able to be spoken about in that regard. And that's where I'm trying to come across. You know, I do many, many talks, particularly over the last number of years. Um, and trying to come across to people as in like, we can look after our physical health because, you know, it's, it's there, it's right in front of us, but our mental health internally, you know, it's something that we feel like we should be ashamed of. We should shy away from, it's a sign of weakness, all these kind of negative perceptions that has been associated with for so many years. Um, but I definitely think it has changed. Um, unfortunately, if you're talking from, it's a bit of a double-edged sword from a government point of view, services simply aren't there. You know, they're giving it probably a lot of lip service, I would say. Um, particularly in these kind of COVID times, you know, our mental health is important. But yes, I'm having people messaging me saying I have to wait six months for a point. You know, simply, that's simply not good enough. You know, it's a matter of life or death for a lot of people. Um, and unfortunately that is the case that's the stark reality um, and even if you look at the statistics for a suicide rate I think in, if I'm right in 10 a couple of years would be the highest suicide rate in, in Europe um, and you know that's simply because the services aren't there and 
So it's kind of a double-edged sword. We can talk about it now, but the services are unfortunately way back. How are you dealing with your mental health, you know, during this lockdown? Um, I say it's very much as it was when you were, you know, during those 11 weeks in, in St. Pat's. Yeah, and, and it's funny, the way you kind of mentioned that and the way I thought about it as well is like, you know, it's, it's hard to think we're probably thinking or saying it's a year uh, a year back now, back in 20, March 2020, I think it was, the first lockdown. Um, and it was very reminiscent of my time in St. Pat's. The way I kind of seen it was we're locked down to a certain area, a certain set of resources, and we had to kind of compartmentalise what's right in front of us and what, what can we do, essentially, you know? And for me, it was massive in terms of putting a structure to my day. I remember back in St. Pat's when I was given this kind of nearly like a school timetable um, of kind of telling, telling you where you are between nine to five or nine to six you're either in a group therapy session, a one-to-one session, psychology session, all these sorts of stuff. And it's a very, very much a thing of when I went into COVID and lockdown number one, it was putting a structure to my day, making sure I have things that I'm accountable for. I love that kind of visual aspect of having the calendar right in front of me and my week mapped out Monday to Sunday. And it kind of reduces that anxiety of like, where am I, what am I doing, et cetera, et cetera. All that kind of muddle up kind of feeling or confusion you may have in your head. Um, and I had things like, you know, physical exercise, I'm sure. And I'm sure you were like that as well. The, the infamous 5Ks that we all went on, that was certainly planned in there on, on a number of days. You know, the physical exercise, that was a massive thing for me. Those happy endorphins, that release. And it was something that I tried to plan every single day. Um, non-negotiables, I was lucky at the time, just prior to a month ago before I left um, Texaco Service Station, a garage that I worked for seven and a half years, were seen as essential service. So, of course, I was working. So that was my non-negotiable. Um, and then thirdly, what I had planned in is something to stimulate my mind. Ironically, I only started, I would say, probably delving into kind of reading books um, over the last kind of year. And you're kind of thinking, so there's a, there's a bit of irony in that. But um, no, those those would be three things, a massive thing, just having a structure through a day. And that's what got me through like this past year in particular. Um, and I think it's a thing that a lot of people can take on. You can structure it in whatever way it's kind of suited to you, I would say. What was the journey like, John, sitting down, writing the book? Um, how do you go about planning this, structuring it? Just kind of an overview of curiosity. Yeah, so when it was, um, it first came about in April 2019 when I received an email off the O'Brien Press and I first thought it was a joke, I thought it was the lads, you know, messing with me and everything like that and very quickly I realised it was quite um, it was quite the opposite, it was very official and and it was of course the, the serious aspect of, of Michael O'Brien, uh, the owner of the O'Brien Press, uh, had come to me and said, look, um, we'd be interested in bringing you in and um, there's a possible book deal there for you. Um, so I bent in and spoken to him and he had referred to the blog that I'd written back in December 2018. Um, and he said, we'd love for you to kind of use this as the skeleton of the book and, of course, then flesh it out into, into a wider kind of context. And that's how essentially I, I went about writing it. Um, I used the kind of skeleton of that blog um, and I was just trying to flesh out. I took a couple of weeks just to kind of start from my early days my secondary school days of course the indifferent part of my life and my life thereafter and and you know spoke to my mom my dad's my sisters my best friends just for like their little input in it and and I just went about it every single day I had days to be honest I had days where I wrote for 20 minutes and then I had days where I'd you know I'd be off writing for seven hours you you know I I would just find a flow I just have an overall structure I'd want to kind of reach a certain amount of and you know where it's hit at at the end of the week the end of the month that type of thing that's how I mapped it out but I'd known that I'd have days where I had that kind of creative writing spark and then other days where I wouldn't um, but I didn't get too bogged down I'd have days where it was good I'd have days where it was bad and then it all just kind of came together so 
I kind of just flew with it. Um, it was a year and a half in the making, um, and it was really, really enjoyable. I actually thought it was going to be an awful lot more stressful than actually what it was. Really enjoyable, kind of really enjoying being able to put it down and actually seeing it down on paper um, and kind of seeing where I've come from. And that was a huge kind of proud moment. It's like I've went from the point of not being able to tell my mom or dad, my best friends, to now essentially telling the whole world, if you like. Um, so it was hugely satisfying, hugely proud moment. And yeah, a year and a half in the making, a, a long, long time. But um, as I said, very proud. Would doing another book be, be something you could, uh, you would have interest in doing? Obviously, you can't do another autobiography, like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's actually, and, and I don't think they'd have any problem in, in, in me saying this. It was actually offered to me um, only, I think it was three weeks after the initial release of, of Dark Blue. And it was a book in a different context, more so to do with kind of kind of general mental health. And of course, in around these COVID times and um, a bit of a kind of self-help book and away from, of course, the autobiography and my own kind of story is just more of a general aspect. And I was usually humbled. I was I was hugely humbled that such an offer was coming so early as well. Um, but I just thought it was, you know, from my point of view, I certainly want to kind of move on in terms of uh, onto a career and focus on sport and focus on other things. Um, and that's not to say I always kind of had in my head that, you know, 10 years down the line, well, of course, I have another story and I'd, and I'd love to write another book. Um, but I just think for the time being, I just think I want to focus kind of on different areas of my life. I, I really put a sole focus on the book for I would say the last year and a half two years um, and it's been absolutely fantastic so I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say no to a second book but probably just not just yet that would be interesting down the line you know to delve into I would say how, where you've come since since then definitely be be interesting um, so it's supposed to be interesting as well to delve into you know your time in, in San Fran something like that Last one as well <laughs> later on. So look, just I'd like to delve into um, you know, before fifty or when things really kind of started for you. Can you give us an, an insight? You know, where did GA come come from? Like, were you did you come from a GA dominated family or background? Yeah, it was. It was very much. I was brought into a sport mad family, and um, you know, my three older sisters, and um, they were cast into absolutely every, every single sport, and um, and they were relatively talented at it as well my you know my sister represented dublin and um, my youngest of the three sisters stephanie and um, rep- represented dublin from an early age as well in the Kamobi, uh terms and um, my other two sisters um i'd represented the club at a high level as well so we were coming from a, a mad sporting family um, and that kind of probably was more so on my dad's side and um, my dad played gaelic soccer hurling absolutely everything ran he's ran 16 marathons and three motorcycles um in, in his time so he was, a, he was an avid sport enthusiast, avid uh, athlete and whatever else. Um, and he's not short in telling me that anyway. Um, he's told me many, many, many embarrassing dad stories about his sport and kind of um, endeavours and all that. So no, it was, it was infectious. Uh, it was infectious, certainly from an early age for my dad. And, um, you know, bringing me into, into all this and particularly Gaelic football. I remember from the early days of you know, him bringing me to Crow Park and, um, you know, in the Hogan Sand or the Hill 16 and all this kind of sort of stuff in the, in the later years then, that it was just ingrained in me that I want to be here one day. And, um, you know, I was just torn between an awful lot of sports, but I knew kind of um, from a very early age, it was either Gaelic football or soccer that I was going to go down the line of. Um, but I was fortunate enough, you know, yourself as a kid, you know, you don't need to make that decision just yet. So you, you'd be... 15 training sessions a week and all that maybe happy out but uh, the decision obviously then 
I'd come to that solely focus on Gaelic football, and of course, that's where where my story would have began. As they say, yeah, you, you didn't leak it off the ground, anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that it was the sport element was always, you know, I suppose you would have been in your your DNA. Um, I, I researched as well before I came across that you were talented at all the sports, you know. Um, so as a result, you know, within social groups and even at that age, you're naturally kind of put on pedestal. Do you know, um, do you think that didn't, do you think that affected you from being kind of more open, open to talk about your feelings? I, I think it was a, I think it was a problem, um, you know, when I had maybe thought about speaking up um, I, I definitely thought it was a barrier, certainly uh, at the outset um, in the middle of fifth year when it all started for me, because um, as you're referring to that pedestal figure that I was seen as living this great life and um, p- people were probably looking at it from the outside looking in I, I was probably living the idyllic life I was you know popular amongst friends and relatively talented in any sport that I threw my hand at and I was so lucky in that regard and I didn't want to be up there I didn't want to be seen as uh, this the alpha male amongst all the lads and all this sort of stuff but that's how they'd see me um, I had no issue in it in terms of I was just keeping myself to myself I didn't glow all that much and let them have their opinions and whatever else they want they want to say about me that was fine I I, I had to realize the lucky position that I was in and um, so early on in my life and in particular Gaelic football representing the double minor footballers where you could say my double career really did begin and um, it was only then entering in, into my second year of double minor football that I had huge difficulty then and um, when these kind of emotions started turning and um, I didn't know what depression was mental health etc cetera, etc cetera, but I knew it wasn't normal what I was feeling and um, certainly a couple of months in I was thinking what is going on here but because I was seen as this alpha kind of male amongst the lads and idyllic figure living this great life that was the hindrance that I had I, I couldn't speak up I was thinking if I said this to the lads they'd be they'd be laughing at me and the same token I was thinking even if I say to my parents they'd think I was lying um, and that's the kind of irrational thinking uh, straight from the outset um, in the middle of fifth year and it was starting to engulf my mind and it simply wasn't healthy and of course that led me into into worse days to, to thereafter what about um you, you said your Dublin career kind of started in my when you hit minors but surely didn't this start on the 12 yeah well <laughs> in, 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 a, in a in a much much smaller context um I, I, I wouldn't really say my, my dumb career began at under 12 at the tender age of, of 11 or 12 years of age, whatever I was. Um, it was very much in the aspect of, you know, involved in developing teams right the way up, but um, in terms of a serious kind of nature and um, you would say the start of your career in terms of, you know, I dropped the soccer. I was torn between soccer and Gaelic, as I said. I dropped the Gaelic, or I dropped the soccer and folks on the Gaelic football. So that was coming into the fore of, you know, training five, six times a week. So, yeah, I would say my proper Dublin career uh, began. And that, that's where I'd mark it as, um, you know, my first year at Dublin minor football. That, that first year as well, I was actually at that game. I remember the goal going in. Uh, you lost Tipperary. Yeah. Um, do you think... You know, without delving too much into things, do you think that affected you as well, or do, did sport really affect you? No, I, I think it was it was quite the opposite. In fact, of course, you know, dealing with this, um, regardless of what um, was then going to enter my head, um, you know, it was going to be tough, and um, it was tough for all of us. Um, but the way I kind of seen it as, and 
I was probably quite mature in the, the aspect of, I'd see it as more of a motivational kind of thing um, for what was going to be my second year at Dublin Minor Football. Um, and it wasn't sport, it wasn't the pressure of, you know, it probably sounds so crazy, but I thrived. I wanted to get into that pressurised environment and playing in front of packed capacity crowd in Crow Park. And it probably sounds so crazy, but that's that's where I see myself. That's where I'd seen myself from literally 10, 11, 12 years of age and so early on. Um, and sport was just my only outlet. Um, so it was quite the opposite. In fact, everything outside of football, outside of my sport world, was the causation of my demise. It was only when I went into that kind of sport and bubble that I felt safe, I felt like myself, and I felt like I could express who I really was. I found it very interesting, the fact that, you know, obviously, John, you know, when people are feeling down and all that and, and depressed, that they have no, you know, they, they have no interest in going out for a run or a walk. Mm-hmm. But it was quite opposite for you. Yeah. You were very, very lucky. I think that do you think that was vital in your I would say recovery, but in, in things getting better for your daughter? Yeah, absolutely. And and it was a conversation that I had early on and um in the hospital as as you know, for, for a lot of people who have experienced depression and uh, and people who are listening on here who've experienced that, you know, deep, deep low that is depression. Um you don't want to get out of bed, you don't want to attack today your energy levels are low, you're mentally drained, you're physically drained. And I, I don't know what it was. I, I don't know whether I couldn't say I was running on adrenaline for two years, but a lot of it was I was running scared of, you know, wanting to face up to what the actual reality of it was for me. And um, I was living a very, very busy life. And I felt like if I'd shown any cracks, any kind of um, anything away from my norm of, you know, going hundred miles an hour every single day, you know, people would certainly begin to beg question, you know, what's what's going on with Shane? So I was running scared from it. Um, I was one of the very, very lucky ones that, you know, my energy levels did come into question sometimes. Um, but I think adrenaline got me over the line. And it was just nearly gearing up for those, you know, one hour, two hour sessions um, that were either in the shape of a gym session, a pitch session, or even then a match at the weekend. And that was my performance. That was my kind of safe haven. That was my escape. And then after that, I was just running on, whatever bit of energy levels that I had uh, for the rest of the week and the rest of the day. I suppose looking back, it was, you know, there was so much going on when you were in fifth and sixth year because obviously you, you were in with the minors um, and then you got the phone call, you know, to win the seniors and then you were studying for your exams. I suppose, yeah. in a way, you were probably constantly running on... Yes. ...a drilling in a way. Um, did you... I think obviously you probably didn't get much of a chance to, to have a few drinks back then, but when you did have a drink, um, you know, did it affect you? I, I don't, to be honest, and that was the slag and probably, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't have my first drink, I think, until my, was it my 17th birthday, I think I'm right in saying. Um, <laughs> and then even in, in the second year of Dublin minor football, um, I went cold turkey literally from the start of January to, um, it wasn't until the All Ireland final, the All Ireland final night of, of obviously celebration. So I would easily go nine, ten months of the year um, without drinking, and it did come into play sometimes. Um, and that was then even you know why I would you know escape from, I would say a, a lot of kind of social aspects in terms of um, particularly drinking. Um, I would say I oh, know I've trained of a match, um, and that was just not something out of the norm for me. That was just oh, sure it, it's it is out of norm if I was drinking, you, you know, so the question yeah. like, geez, Carthy, you're drinking, like, as in what's, what's going on here? You know, you, you've, you've obviously months off or something like that. So it was very easy for me to escape out of that um, kind of rut that I would find myself in when I was drinking. But lucky enough, it wasn't that often. 
um, that would let let my kind of emotional filter, as obviously drinking does, and um, let it off, and then you know show the real side of what was going on internally. Then you you said there um, that your 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 first drink in a row, we say when you won All Ireland and second year of Dublin Miners. Um, was that the night you went parting with Daniel Ray, 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 Rayclough or was it the Harry Potter led? Yeah, Daniel Radcliffe, yeah, yeah. Radcliffe, uh, <laughs> Funny one, and, and, and I'm kicking myself to this day, and I'm going to blame it, um, an arch rival over the fence there in, in, um, in Conor Ryan, the Saints of Esther's man. Um, we were in town. Um, I was out on that night out, and um, I, I can't remember where we were. Um, we were in town somewhere it could have been D2 or Everly or whatever it was um, and anyway we're in we're in McDonald's and the lad said baby Byrne the captain I said lads you want to come back to my gaff and I was saying Connor come on like as in this third, third or fourth day like drinking here I need someone on, on my side of town to get back let's go home let's call it a night it's three or four o'clock so we went one way Davy Byrne the lads went the other way and sure enough that way was off to, to Harry Potter and the infamous story that is around there so I was I should have been there I wasn't there unfortunately um, and I'm gonna blame Conor Ryan on that one. So, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Um, I'd just like to delve into as well, uh, Shane, if you don't mind. That uh, like, what were your feelings, um, at the time? You know, I suppose at the time you probably didn't know how you were feeling exactly, but like, were you? Do you have anxiety? Was your chest tight? Um, or you know stuff like that. Like, what was the feet? What was your body signs? of what you were going through mm-hmm. yeah and, and it's one of those where i think it was um i would say it was different uh, of course each day it was depending on what situation i was finding myself in if i was going into you know a, a group uh, setting or say even you know driving on the bus with the lads out for a match um, I, I would feel internally i would feel so sick i'd have a knot in my stomach i'd have tightness in my chest um, and i was trembling at times but I hit it so well, I was, you know, was one thing of like one side of me was saying, don't show any signs of cracks or anything like here. So I was trying to act and, um, you know, I would say hide it away. And I was doing so well to hide it away. And um, other stages, I was having the, these internal dialogues that I was coming in and out of conversations. And, you know, last start off from something and I go off into my own mind and I come back in. It was as if like I was, you know, noise canceling headphones, I was taking them on and off. And that was the feeling for me. Um, and the huge scary thing was I didn't know why that was happening. Um, I couldn't make sense of it. I didn't know how to stop it. Um, and it was just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and as we kind of referred to back earlier on in, in the podcast here, that, you know, that pedestal like figure that I was seeing as, as these thoughts and feelings were getting worse and worse, you know, it was beginning to become more difficult, I would say, to kind of, you know, feel like I'm going to speak up here. I'm going to speak up here because at that stage then my life was going an upward curve and, you know, internally it was going quite the opposite. Um, so the, the reality of me speaking up was getting further and further apart um, as my life was going on. I just, I just find it, it, it's, you know, it, it kind of, I suppose it goes against all, um, you know, signs of what you hear of, of depression or even just people feeling low that, you were still able to perform and you weren't only just performing, you were getting men the match. Like, you know, you were, yeah. you were flying. Yeah. Like, was it affecting your play at all? Your recovery? Do you think it was looking back now? When I, when I look back and probably the irony in it is as it got worse, my performances are getting better. 
Um, and the only way and the only reason behind that maybe was that, as I said, that safe haven, that was the pitch um, that gave me that release was that I wanted it so badly and um, that I wanted it so badly to give me that release, to give me the happy endorphins. Um, and it was something that I was so enthused in, I was so kind of connected to when I felt like a kid in the playground every single time I go onto the pitch. And you're speaking about, you know, man, the match performances in that Leinster in the 21 final toward the very, very latter ends of those two years, I gave probably, to this day, the most satisfying 60 minutes of football I've ever played. I was pounding every single blade of grass, and I simply didn't want to get out, get out of there. Um, and part of me was probably thinking that, of all things, if I show any you know dips in my performance here, that people are certainly going to be asking the question, is everything okay? And then that delves into, you know, is, is he all there? Is everything okay? And I just simply didn't want that. So it was probably a mixture between chasing those happy endorphins and then on the other side as well chasing that performance aspect that no one can question me here what is going on really in my life like you must have like I'm just trying to digest all this like you must have literally played a blinder in regards to putting on a front you know that no one had any inkling whatsoever of what was going on. I know you referred to the poker face. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. Um, do you want to kind of just delve into that? Like, how was it at night? Did you find it hard to sleep and things? So at the start, I, I was finding difficulty in sleeping. But to be honest, even prior to that, and even thereafter, like I'd easily function at four or five hours sleep. And I know some people are different. Um, you know, they need their eight, nine, 10 hours sleep in some shape <laughs> it depends what college course you're in at this stage but um, <laughs> no, I, I, I would have functioned off 4 or 5 hours sleep so I, I was nearly you know I would say afraid to go to bed or afraid to go to um, you know sleep too long or you know in, in case my mood was you know you know indifferent or my kind of routine had changed at a 4 or 5 hour sleep that I was used to getting um, and I found myself you know sleeping quite easily because by the time my head hit the pillow I was so exhausted. It was as if, like, as he's referred to there, that poker face, it was as if I was just placing it by my bedside locker and just, like, completely switching off. It was just my head was so heavy when I hit the pillow. I was conked out like a light. Um, so there was no issue. And, and I know for a lot of people, it's so sleepless nights. It's just sitting up, that anxiety, that kind of overthinking, ruminating, the whole lot. That just simply wasn't a thing for me because I was so mentally drained by the time I got to the end of the day. Because every single situation I was going into and it was only that brief respite of, say, for example, I was, you know, driving to somewhere. I could take a couple of deep breaths. I was preparing myself, trying to visualize the um, the kind of environment that I was going into. Um, and that poker face was was so well worn. I probably should have been given an Oscar award <laughs> for the acting performance I put on. And it was only toward the later, later end of those two years that, you know, this battle-worn kind of mask was wearing thin. You know, cracks began to appear in terms of my physical appearance particularly for my mom and dad, I'd come in with bloodshot eyes after hours of crying for the car. And I simply couldn't hide that. Um, I simply couldn't hide it. I was pale, I was expressionless and things were getting an awful lot worse. Um, so those kind of physical characteristics, I couldn't hide. Internally, I could hide those you know, negative kind of conversations and everything else going on. But externally, physically, I, I couldn't hide it, you know. So um, that's when questions were beginning to, to be asked in around that time. Is, is everything really okay for and you you alluded to there that you know you, you were crying and I know in the late late you alluded to um you know I've been in the Port Manuk Dark Station. 
did it ever kind of come to you? Did it ever did it, did you ever think about you know look something's not right here? Maybe I should talk to you know someone. But again, I suppose at the same time, you know you you were up there and you didn't want to. You know, I'm just trying to delve in. Am I making sense? If you know what I mean, I'm just trying to kind of make sense yeah. as to what what yeah. was going on at the time. I would, I would say that the, the conversation that I began to have that I wanted to speak up was when the suicidal ideation started coming into my head um, because I didn't want to act upon them. I didn't want to think that way. Um, and that was a year and a half in. And the difficulty then, particularly in around that time, was I just won um, the All-Ireland. So I just got my hands on the Sam McGuire at 18 years of age. And the following week, I had suicidal ideation. So that certainly you know stalled me in my tracks thinking, again, if I said this to people, they'd simply think I was lying. They'd laugh at me. They'd say, like, what, you're just looking for attention, Carthy, or whatever it may be, you know? And that has kind of made the kind of difficult kind of nature of wanting to speak up for the first couple of months. Um, you know, you know, very, very hard. Um, and then kind of coming into then the January of that year, now two years through my journey through depression, when I really began to, okay, I'm needing to build up the courage here. I didn't know what I wanted to say. But I knew I needed to speak up because the suicidal ideations weren't leaving by my side. But at a six-week period between, you know, the, the loss of my granddad first and then my nana, um, both my mom's side. So when I was kind of in, thinking internally, okay, I need to speak up, all this was happening around me. So I was thinking, I certainly can't speak up here. So whatever I'm going through can't, you know, compare to what my mom, particularly losing her mom and dad within the space of six weeks, and my family alike are going through. So that's certainly... You know, stopped it in his tracks, um, and as I said, these physical kind of discrepancies that were beginning to be seen was probably a blessing in disguise that they were because I was getting to the point of life or death, and that was a stark reality. Um, and I was lucky that I was, you know, probably I, I would say in a situation where my mom had found me in a flood of tears, and uh, the cracks that she thought she was beginning to kind of see for a number of months was right before her eyes, and that was the first time that that battle-worn mask had just been dropped completely and I was just, I was down and out, I was gone. I was thinking the game is up here. I've, I can't hide this anymore, I'm fed up. Um, and I was really, really lucky when my mom found me on, on that morning. Before we get to that morning, you know, you, you were in Dublin Seniors at 18 and won All-Ireland in that year. It was must have been a massive achievement. Or were you just kind of going through the motions? You, did you fully understand the... The, the severity or the, the massive honour it was, you know, what I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I certainly didn't realise the magnitude. Sorry, I, I did realise the magnitude of what I achieved, um, but I couldn't feel the elation that should have been attached to that. Um, and that was just unfortunately the case in terms of, you know, it's spoken about even little things of, I remember Paul Flynn, I think if I'm right in remembering, leading up to the, the All-Ireland quarterfinal against Cork or could have been the semi-final against Kerry, one of those it was uh, after training, you were saying, uh, these are the best days of our lives. Um, and I knew exactly what he meant. He got, of course, he didn't mean it in any other way, that it was just a quote, but it was a quote that stuck in my head, best days of our lives. And internally, I'm thinking, I'm robbing this opportunity for another 18 or 19-year-old that would have snapped their hand off at the opportunity to be in there um, because of the way that I'm feeling. This is certainly not in around the best days of my life um, and I felt so so guilty and it was of course absolutely no fault of, of Flinners that was just a, an off the cuff kind of comment and that a very very apt comment because it should have been the, the best days of, of an 18 year old's life anyway um, and even when the All-Ireland had spoken about the numbness that was met with that um, and I guess for kind of years after and even particularly um, you know I'm going on to pre- present moment in, 
in time, I would say it's a motivation for me to get back in the Hogan stand steps to feel every bit of what I should have felt. Um, and that's the way I look at it to this day. Um, but unfortunately, as I say, I just, although I realised the magnitude, I couldn't feel it. I think I, when I was looking into, I was listening to, you know, research you know, and all that, and I found it, found it funny like that, um, you know, you were in training with Dublin early in the morning and you used to try on your, your school uniform and the yeah. boys try, try on their suits. It must have been yeah. crazy. Yeah, it, it was it, it was mental. It was one of those, and I think it was in, in around the early stage of January, February, where I think if if I might remember, it was Tuesday, Thursdays. We used to have six a.m. gym sessions, and um, of course, the chair up. And as I said, the lads are getting into their work uniforms, their, their school teacher uniforms, and normal clothes, and I'm getting into my, my school uniform. Um, you know, and sitting in the canteen, the lads are like mental like as in teachers that were there say the likes of Kevin Nolan I remember he'd saying to me it's like if you're in my class this afternoon like as in this is just mental like as in the situation that I was finding myself in and that just encapsulated the lucky position that I was in and the, the rarity of the situation that I was in and it, it probably wasn't it isn't quite the norm to be still in school and you know representing a senior football team such as Dublin you know and I remember even you know some mornings where I'd run over late for some sessions and I'd come into uh, I'd come into my morning class probably 20, 25 minutes late, barreling in the door with a cup of coffee for takeaway coffee and then like, you know, takeaway food and like a little um Tupperware or whatever it was, and the teachers didn't even bat an eye. I was just down the back, you know, eating my, you know, omelet or veg or whatever was served up in that morning. So it it was crazy. It was it, it was moments I'll never forget. And um, I look back on it now and realize how privileged I was. And unfortunately. I, I just couldn't attach any emotion to it. And um, I wasn't blind by the fact what, what I was doing, but I just couldn't attach anything to it. I definitely believe a lot of you know people our age are going through that at the moment, you know, and it's it's uh it's quite scary, you know, where they might end up, especially with the, the lack of services. But before yeah. we before we get into that, um you 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 alluded to the fact that you know, you, you you were about to, to tell your parents on two occasions, but obviously you were met with unfortunate news on, on both occasions. But the things really kind of hit the hit the wall. Um, on a Wednesday is the day of the Linster on the twenty one final two thousand fourteen. Do you want to just kind of bring us through that? I know you said your your mother met you in a in a flood of tears. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the the Linster on the twenty one final? As I said, I had to look forward to that evening. Um, down in Port Leash against, against Mead and on that morning my mum found me in the sitting room in a flood of tears and um, such was the way for the previous two years I didn't know why I was feeling that way I couldn't control my emotional filter anymore the tap was just opened and my mum had, had sat beside me I put her arm around me and uh, didn't say an awful lot but it was just known that I had a right by my side and um, I was thinking as as down and out as I was I was thinking thank God this this part of my life is over you know the, the, the acting that was going on for so long and um, I'd wept for hours wept for absolutely two, I think it was two or three hours and my mum had you know contacted my middle system Ray who was off on that particular day to say look Shane's in a bad way here are you able to bring him out for a couple of hours to distract him before the game you know I, I don't want him sitting around the house and you know dwelling on his thoughts that are going um, within his head like you know so Right, uh, come out to the house, um, and I still stagger to this day. And uh, the, the bright idea that she had to distract me for a big Lancer final game was to bring me on a two-hour cliff walk up the hills of Hope. And 
Um, you, you know, and, and I think everyone else knows listening to this, Jamie, is that is not the most idyllic thing to be doing uh, before a big championship game. But again, it was, I, I would say, it was just known again, as it were, with my mom in the sitting room, I was on that walk, that I had that listening ear, that listening shoulder that I so deeply needed for those previous two years, you know, and my head never left the gravel. I'd looked, I'd looked down the ground for, for the whole part of, the, you know, the two hours of the walk and cliff walk had come to an end and I shut the door when I got back into the car and all the thoughts and feelings came bundling straight back in. And I had my phone out and I was about to ring Desi to say, look, I can't go through with this. And to this day, as I said, um, you know, I, I don't know why I didn't go through with that phone call. Um, so I went off, got my gear bag ready, met the lads in the team hotel for the pre-match meal. And, um, you know, in, the, in those situations, it's it's not so apparent that someone is off or someone is not eating, as it were. In my case, I didn't eat. I was maybe half a sup of water because the lads are already getting strapped and, um, you know, doing a bit of foam rolling or getting their food themselves. And people are just partnering about doing their own thing. So I wasn't spotted. I sat myself at the top of the bus, had my hood up, had my headphones on. And I was just playing, like, as in, lads down the back of the bus would probably hear what I was, what I was playing, like, you know, in the headphones and playing it so loud because I was, like, trying to just cancel out the negative voices that were going deep within, like, you know. And halfway through the bus journey, I contact Marade again and say, look, I'm, I'm in such a bad way here, I can't go through with this. And she texted me back saying, look, the family are right behind you, we want to see it a bit. So, arrived to the grounds and went into the dressing room, prepared for mass, I always did. And as I've spoken about, you know, it was the most satisfying 60 minutes of football I've ever played. I was I was like a kid in a playground again, pounding every blade of grass. And I'll just never forget, as in those moments where I was so, so happy. It was so safe. It was a, a moment in time that I didn't want to give up. Um, and even to the latter end of the match, you know, we were four or five points up. I, I think I'm right remembering it's two or three minutes left to go. And I'm making eyeball with the, with, with the referee and... Uh, you're probably thinking I'm telling them to blow it up. And I was thinking the exact opposite. I was thinking, don't blow that whistle. I'm, I'm in heaven here. Like, I don't want to get off this pitch. And, of course, blew his whistle. We're victorious. And um, as he lose there earlier on, as Ward of Man the match. Um, and that, that again, that pedestal-like figure going up to collect his Man the Match award. Um, was seen once again living this idyllic life. And people watching on applaud me and everything like that. If only they'd seen me 12 hours previous um, in a flood of tears. But... That was such so that was the way that was the contrast of the two lives that I was living um, and probably the lie that I was living um, for far too long. So um, that kind of encapsulates the whole Leinster final day from morning to afternoon to evening um, and the contrast of emotions all the way through. After the game, um, yeah, after the game, you, you went to, to Desi and you, you told him that you, you don't want to be celebrating, you're just going to hit away. I said that definitely kind of made yeah. him think, you know, that's not normal to, for a fella to do after winning this final or yeah. final. Yeah, and, and, and of course, Desi was coming from the point of view of he had, of course, his personal kind of struggles. And even looking back, and um, if, if people were ever to kind of look back in those, uh, those pictures, I was so pale. I was so, you could just see. If you really knew what was going on for me, you could just see from my physical appearance, you know, from getting the award so pale I just wasn't myself I was gaunt and just worn out and I think Desi had seen that when I when I came face to face to him at the door of the dressing room to tell him and even just the kind of hurried nature and I'll I'll never forget the kind of hurried nature that I kind of said it to him I was like I just don't want to get into a conversation here I don't want to talk about this 
and he certainly knew. Um, he didn't know, of course, know the extent of what was going on. And no one did, still at that stage. Um, but he definitely knew there was something up, that, that kind of warning sign. As you say, it's not a normal thing to be doing after the Leicester final because we're, I think, what I'm saying, two and a half weeks out from an All-Ireland semi-final. So it's not like, right, lads, I'm going to have to put my feet up here in Stockholm and everything like that. So it was definitely a warning sign from um, and even the contact that I had from or had with them over there um, was certainly uh, the warning sign that he thought he was seeing confirming that uh, when I extended my trip um, two times over, like, you know. Jesus, it's um, no, definitely. It's, uh, you must have kind of felt um, a bit of weight off your shoulders, the fact that you knew now that your family were there and that Daisy haven't gone through it, especially especially when someone who's who's gone through it, you know, it was another shoulder for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was when I'd kind of come back from that, that kind of trip, and of course, you know, my my mom and dad and sisters were aware. Um, again, probably not being able to kind of relate to me in any shape or form because they never went through something like that. They were, of course, so supportive in it and and listened to anything that I had to say. But um, the first time that I had someone relate to me um, was Desi. Um, when I met him, when I come off the plane and stuck on and met him the, f- the following day in Costa Coffee. And I was saying, you know, saying these kind of things to him of what was going on for me for the previous two years and the thoughts and feelings that I was having. He was like, Shane, I can completely relate to you. And I was like, that was the first kind of realization that I was like, someone else has gone through this as in like there's something coming back here you know I thought I was the only one in the world going through this you know such was my own own education around mental health and and I would say just my kind of overall rational thoughts of no one else has gone through this no one else will get me no one else will understand and when he'd said those those kind of words I completely relate to I was like I just kind of nearly fell back in the chair it it didn't make it all that easy everything wasn't you know cleared up and, and it's all rosy but it was nice to know I'm not the only one um, and of course then you know the, the following days the following day was was when I inevitably landed myself in, in St. Pat's the, Before we delve into that um, you kind of alluded to there with just what you said about about, uh, about Desi and when, when he was there you knew that you know someone else went through it would I be right in saying that up until then um, you thought what you were feeling was normal as you know, normal to feel for um, fifth or sixth years to for a 17, 18 year old person. Do you think those feelings were normal because you weren't aware of of obviously mental health? I I, I actually thought that they were abnormal, um, but the difficulty was that I thought I was the only one who had ever felt this way. Um, you know, from, from those kind of thoughts and feelings that was having, I certainly knew it wasn't the norm um, and you know prior to fifth year I'd known a different way of thinking um, it was just then the irrational kind of thoughts that were coming into my mind and um, I certainly knew it was abnormal it wasn't and um, the right thing to be thinking um, and my difficulty was that I was thinking there's no one else to relate to here there's no other stories there's no other and uh, if there was it was certainly kept hush hush and that's where I'm talking about the stigmatized life of mental health in general there wasn't any of these blogs or well-being seminars and all this kind of stuff that is going on now and um, so I had no one to kind of relate to no to confide in and that was my difficulty and that was why I was so so glad in a way to hear that you know Desi was relating to me in some shape or form. I met Desi that Monday when you came back and two days later you're 
unfortunately you ended up in, in St. Pat's. Do you want to kind of give us an insight into to that day and when you blanked out, did you completely blank out, like just gone completely? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, we were less than a week away from an All-Ireland semi-final and it was the Tuesday. So it was the, the, the day after that, um, I'd met Des in Costa Coffee um, I was due to meet my psychologist and um, that I never uh, ended up meeting on the on the Wednesday. So the Tuesday was the training camp and we're out in DCU. Um, my dad had actually driven me out and I, he didn't want me to drive my, my, on my own. And of course, he knew what was going on. Um, so he drove me out to the training camp, trying to come and gone. Um, nothing out of the, the, uh, the ordinary there, but we're then due to have a meeting out in Castle Hotel. Uh, just 20 minutes away from DCU and along that journey from DCU to Castle Hotel, my, you know, uh, abiding memory of was, you know, a massive spike in heart rate, a massive spike in adrenaline. I'd asked my dad to pull over um, and I blanked out, completely blanked out, no recollection of any moment in time. And, um, you know, those are the accounts that I had to recall with, with my parents and with my dad in particular. And when I was writing the book, um, because I simply didn't remember any of that. Um, he recalled it so vividly. Um, of course, he was never, and will never forget that day. Um, and my next abiding memory was then being woke up in St. Pat's. Um, and that kind of had started a journey that um, I'm so grateful to have been on, I would say. Okay. It must have been frightening for, you know, your, your father, obviously, they had become aware of what was going on in, in your mind. But, for the whole thing to come to that stage, you know, and for it to affect your body that much, um, geez, it must must have been frightening. Um, and it's have you any recollection whatsoever? All you can remember was telling to pull over, and that was it. Did you kind of completely pass out, or were you still were your eyes still awake? My eye, as my, as my oh, dad said, my, my my eyes were were open. They're certainly glassy-eyed, and he said, "Like I, I knew you had no, you, you weren't coherent. You weren't coherent. You were looking at me, but you were looking through me, and it was like a glassy-eyed look. And um, yeah, my actions were independent of of what was really kind of going on internally, and um, because I didn't know what was going on, um, and that was unfortunately the case. And fortunately enough, as well, on the on the flip side of that, that my dad was there. God forbid, I was driving on my own." And and that was simply the, the lucky position that I found myself in, and that my dad had the know how and the cop on to say, "Look, I'm not letting you drive out here on your own. I know exactly what's going on for you." Uh, to some some regard, anyway. Um, so I was very lucky to have him there because God forbid, I don't know what would have happened if he, if he wasn't, um, and someone else had come across me or something else had happened. Um, so yeah, completely kind of even trying to trying to even piece together, remember how I got from. You know, getting out of the car to, to back out to St. Pat's, it's 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 difficult because I, I simply can't remember. And um, I'm just basing it off what my dad had told me um, and what happened from there. So even that kind of aspect of then going from that point to St. Pat's and here's my kind of, again, stigmatized life, mental health. You know, you're in a mental hospital and I was thinking, I'm, I'm going home here. I said, like, I'm not staying here. I'm not staying here with, quote, quote, what I probably coined the crazies or lunatics or, or whatever else that's that's simply the again your uneducated self that i you know i placed upon the perspective of a mental hospital um, and of course i i learned very very quickly that was absolutely not the case but um that's just simply where my mind had brought me to 
do you think um uh, do you think the fact that you know, we, we have a hospital for every injury and then we have mental hospital do you think the term mental should be taken away because you know we still have that image associated with um movies you know and it's not like that yeah yeah and it, it's actually um Connor Cusack was was one of those people and I know he's pushing hard and, and I would absolutely back um back it to happen that um he kind of wanted or is wanting it to be called you know your emotional well-being and it's it's a lot a lot more apt of a a term to use as opposed to mental and mental hospital emotional well-being whatever way you want to you want to coin that and i think it's an awful lot lighter of a term to use and an awful lot more apt and as opposed to coin a mental hospital because as you say those negative perceptions that stigmatize like that's been there for so many years and it is coined with that term um, and it simply has to change. Um, and if it does help to, you know, destigmatize a, a lot of what is going on um, from people's perceptions by changing the word or changing the term, I should say, that would be uh, that'd be all well and good. So Connor Cusack was one of those that actually referred to that he's been trying to push for that. I definitely think it'd be worthwhile. Um, you know, I think maybe people be more more open or it wouldn't get to the stage as as it possibly could get to you know being people being very very sick or, or or even worse unfortunately um what was your time like there um obviously we're not going into too much detail can you kind of give um an overview of your time in in St. Pat's and obviously actually yeah when you were going through those emotions before that point you obviously didn't really understand what was going on no 17 18 year old do and a lot of people in their 60s 70s don't understand but when you were in there you were obviously given the tools to allow you to digest what happened must have been difficult was it yeah it was hugely difficult as in you know from from day one um i, I didn't realize that it was going to span an 11 week period and um, i had so had my i said on the, the other and semi-final that was three days away and um, from the first day that I got in there and when I met my doctor, he was saying the average stay of a patient is two to four weeks. And I was thinking, no, no, I'm, I'm going off here in three days. I've not going to semi final. And that was still the irrational mind that I had, the kind of cloudiness that was in my head, thinking football is still the most important thing in my life. And for the last number of months, I've been thinking of suicide and I blacked out and I've had to be brought to a mental hospital. And still yet, I think a football match, you know, is the most important thing, you know, so... Uh, of course, I didn't. I didn't play that match, um, and that was hugely difficult. That was difficult to kind of face up to, and the lads had fortunately got over that and kind of hurdle of cabin in that semi final. So my sights were then set. Okay, I really need to accelerate this process and get this over and done. But still, that irrational thinking of instead of just dropping everything and focusing on it in in, in the terms of mental health, I was still thinking I'm going to be out here for this all and final. And it was only then when I kind of began to kind of talk talk to doctor psychologists, as you say. You know, those tools, resources, that kind of clarity that I needed for those kind of two years was beginning to kind of, you know, become a bit easier. It certainly wasn't all unraveled and I hadn't figured it out in a couple of weeks, but um, I'd come to the realisation that I would drop Gaelic football, as Mick Galvin said, if you drop everything else in your life and, you know, focus on your mental health for the next two or three months, you've 80 years of your life to look forward to. And it was that moment in time when he put it so simplistically to me that I'd realised, you know, football can wait you know, I'm going to have to look after this. I'm going to have to go after this as hard as to deal with my physical health and football and capabilities and all this kind of sort of stuff. So that had certainly been a difficult step to take. 
Um, I'm not saying it was easy by any means, um, but it would be made known public where I was, that I wasn't going to be playing the All-Ireland final. I was getting treated with depression and deleting all my all my apps off my phone. I was essentially locked away from the outside world and I think that was the best way to do it. Um, and it was only thereafter that I realised the impact that it had. But, you know, after that, it was certainly kind of zoning in, having my good and bad days, as people can relate to, you know, through depression, any bit of mental health kind of difficulties people have, having my good and bad days. But I was beginning to be able to cope in those bad days that bit better, if that makes sense. And, you know, using these tools, resources, cope mechanisms that was being brought to me with, you know, the help of psychologists and doctors. And as I said, a span of an 11-week period, 11-week period that changed my life and it rebooted my mind. It gave me a new way of thinking, new way of, I would say, seeing, seeing the world. And because the way I was seeing the world prior to my admission into the same paths, it simply wasn't helping. It was leading me down to one path. Um, and that was a path that not, not you know, no one should be going down. Um, and so I was so lucky, so privileged to be in that position as we spoke about those services aren't there. You know, financially, that wouldn't have been viable for us if the GPA and WGA didn't step up. Um, and give me those support systems. And I'm very, very um, lucky to have those because an awful lot of people don't. Um, and that's where I'm trying to come across in terms of looking at my side and as, as an example. I got the treatment straight away. I did what I needed to do over those 11 weeks and be a different time, time span for many because everyone's journey is different. But then I've enjoyed a life thereafter, being able to cope with, being able to kind of survive and I would say now live as opposed to at that time for those two years, I was just simply surviving. So um, it was certainly something that I needed and so grateful that it happened for me. Those little weeks, um, were you constantly in St. Pat's or were you eventually were you allowed to kind of slowly allowed to, to go back home? Or were you there for 11 weeks? Like, did you not step foot into your home until the end of 11 weeks? I, it was it was for the first couple of weeks anyway. Um, I was allowed kind of accompanied leave, which was um, a couple of hours out of the hospital. Um, I didn't see anyone. I didn't go to visit any of my friends or see anything else apart from the green field that was Phoenix Park. Um, that was the only place that I wanted to go. Um, and I just, again, such was the, the way it was in Lancaster Final, just pounded every blade of grass because that was what was bringing me to my happy place. Um, and now I had the added kind of, crutches that were there in terms of the actual psychological help that I needed but I certainly knew the physical exercise was there it was got what got me through those two years and um, so for the first number of weeks I was allowed that company leave for a couple of hours and then I think if I'm right remembering four or five six weeks in around there that I was allowed weekend leave and um, but the same thing I kept a quite tight knit and um, just to my family and um, I didn't see an awful lot of people and ke- ke- kind of kept it quite simple um, and then thereafter was just like, you know, week seven, eight, nine, ten. It was weekend leave after weekend leave. Um, and every single time you kind of coped, you were learning things. And it was then, you know, getting to the point of, OK, your integration back inside is due then on week 11. Um, and I'll even never forget that moment when he said, you know, my doctor had said, I, I think you're ready to go home. Um, and that was hugely satisfying. That was a moment that I didn't think was going to come that particular day. Um, and I was nearly in disbelief that he had said it. Um, but again, as you can imagine, it was a huge proud moment and um, hugely satisfying that I brought myself to that point and uh, was afforded that kind of leave. And um, yeah, hugely grateful. There was an awful lot of emotions that was going on that day and being able to tell my my friends and my family, of course, and my three sisters, everyone is surrounded, you know, my mom and dad, everyone who supported me around that time. 
it was great to be able to tell them, you know, I'm ready to go home here. Things must have been extremely bad, the fact they're in their 11 weeks. Um, but thankfully, you know, you, re- you, you rebooted yourself and you're, you're, you know, you've been flying since and obviously looked like every person you have good and bad days. Yeah. What, what were your main takeaways? You have referred to the, the mental health toolbox or even your toolbox. I, I'd be a big advocate of that as well. Um, yeah. Obviously, I've, I've, like, I think I told you before, I've spoken to someone as well. Just about, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in your 18, 19, 20, you're going through a lot of emotions. You just don't know how to feel. But again, like you, having just nowhere to pull from when you need to. Yeah, it was one of those where, you know, the mental health toolbox that had come um, in St. Pat's when I was in those group therapy sessions. And um, again, it's very individualistic, you know. So, you know, my top three, I've, I've spoken about it before in terms of that kind of physical aspect, physical exercise aspect. Those endorphins probably comes as no surprise. That was number one. And number two, that playlist, that podcast, um, you know, um, using an example of that Lancer final kind of day, that bus journey, you know, playing those songs that were bringing me to a happier time and place. And then thirdly is actually speaking to friends and probably probably through social distance coffee or Zoom or whatever else these days. But, um, you know, prior to that, then, you know, with these COVID times where I've been able to kind of just open up to friends and family just to say, look, I'm going through a bit of stress in work, college, relationships, uh, sport and context and where I never once had that. And, you know, so those are my kind of massive three things in my toolbox. But it's very, very apt in saying that, you know, it's individualistic. You know, I, when I was in that group therapy session, we were going around the room speaking about what was in there and in our mental health toolbox. I'd spoken about my top three things and physical exercise, you know, music and, and speaking to friends. And there was a 20 year old male, uh, as it were, and he'd said, uh, I do a bit of knitting. And I was looking at him with 10 heads thinking, uh, you, you do what? <laughs> He's like, I do a bit of knitting. And I was like, oh, this Nevertheless, the next day I was there knitting away the whole lot. Um, it didn't, it didn't absolutely work. My dad, my dad came me for it. Um, but it was just a prime example right there and then that he was 20 years of age, knitting work for him. I was 19 years of age, physical exercise work for me. So, you know, coin what you need to do, put it into your mental health toolbox, have those tools and resources. And I still refer to it these days. And I'm glad you'd said that as well in terms of I still have my good and bad days. I spoke about, you know, the difficulties that I had prior to release of the book. I've even gone through a couple of personal kind of, I'd say, difficulties over the last number of weeks and months. And um, But I'm far better able to cope with them uh, nowadays. And my bad days are never where they once were. Um, but it's it's very, very important saying that I still do have my good and bad days of, of, of those kind of moments of releasing the book. Everything's rosy in my world. Everything's great. It's not. But that's the prime example what I'm trying to say is I'm better able to cope because of all these kind of, you know, education pieces that have been brought upon over the last seven years. I've probably asked this before. Um, yes. And, and there, there's a, obviously a few ways of, of asking it, but what advice would you give, not give to people in similar positions, but give to um, a 17-year-old Shane, Shane Carthy? If you could turn back time, what advice would you give? To yourself, because yeah. I know giving advice to people can be different, but to yourself. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where I hate to say that I have regrets on my story, but if I were to nitpick and, and say one, um, I would absolutely say um, to my 16, 17-year-old self to speak up on day one. In the middle of fifth year, when I thought it was hormonal changes going on for me, and 
to be honest with you, Jamie, as in like when I say that to people, and that would be my abiding advice, 16, 17 year old Shane and absolutely everyone, no matter how big or small the problem is, speak up on day one because if I had known the path that was there for me thereafter, although very, very difficult, it was definitely worth traveling and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy what I went through for those two years. You know, all the kind of things I speak about, these tools and resources, CBT, group therapy sessions, all this sort of stuff, that never would have happened if I didn't speak up. You know, so that was essentially, as I kind of said before, in terms of that kind of foundation of where I rebuilt my life, you know, speaking up. And it doesn't have to be your whole story. It doesn't have to be absolutely everything. But it's just a little soundboard. Look, I've gone through a difficult time. I need some help. It can be as simple as that. And I know it's the most difficult step to take. But I'm trying to let people know that I'm evidence. I'm, I'm, I'm an example of that, of, of speaking up and then, you know, going on a path that is a lot, lot brighter than the one that you probably were going on before. Great. That's very good advice. Before we finish up, uh, social media, while it has its benefits, it has its negatives as well, and it definitely affects people, people's mental health. How are you yeah. dealing with that? I guess it's been particularly difficult over the last number of months, and you know all, all the good that's come from it, um, and there's been an awful lot. It's been very, very overwhelming, as you can probably imagine, after the late, late, and then of course, then the official release of the book. Um, has been absolutely incredible. I wish I could get back to everyone, um, and the reality of it is, like, I, I can't, but I try to as much as I can when I go on to the likes of these platforms to say thank you to everyone for their messages. I simply don't have the time of the day to get back to people. I'd love to, but I can't. Um, but unfortunately, there is those kind of um, the minority um, that will and have said um, quite nasty things. Um, and I, I, we've, we've kind of mentioned off air here, but saying, like, you know, I think people who say they don't pay attention to it are lying and they're absolutely lying because you look at a hundred positive comments, you see that one negative and you're just going to think about it over and over and over again. And as I said about those kind of bad days, it's particularly say those bad comments or negative comments that have got to me, how I've been able to cope with that is actually speaking to the people around me as in just voicing the concerns. Like I'm not like this is kind of playing in my mind and I'm not kind of, happy myself should I be paying attention to it etc etc and just getting people's perspectives and kind of stripping it back to the simplistic nature of who actually matters to me you know the people under under the roof here my family my three sisters my two best friends those are the people that were there for me in my time of need so these people that feel unfortunately to feel the need to justify or whatever they want to do make themselves happy by you know meshing me and taking time out of the day and um, I'm sorry to feel that way um, but they, they don't mean anything to me. Um, and I do have days where I, where I find that difficult. But again, as I said, I trip it back simplistically and, and kind of look at it, what means something to me, who is important in my circle. If it's, um, you know, you, you, you see a lot of people there, they're, they're full of talk on, on social media, but if you saw them face to face, wouldn't say it to your face, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's that's unfortunately yeah. the, the world we're living in, but hopefully things will be put in place going forward. Um, Facebook and, and all these social media platforms, they seem to be getting a lot of pressure put on them. Um, so on Twitter, and so hopefully all going well. Um, before I two more questions before I finish it off, but just before I, I go down that route, um, San Francisco, how much of an experience was that? Um, it was. The best summer of my life, I would say. <laughs> um, 2013 probably should have been the best summer of my life, but as we've spoken about, the 
uh, I would say the journey that I was on, unfortunately, wasn't that. So uh, I'm very happy to say that San Francisco was um, a very, very enjoyable time of life. A lot of stories that um, I, I probably couldn't tell. Um, but <laughs> no, from, from everything from like literally just seeing a different side of life uh, as I spoke with that kind of tunnel vision that football was the only thing going on in my life. And of course, I went over to San Fran to play football, but I was very much brought into the system of, of course, yeah, you're going, you're being brought over here to play football, but we want you to experience life around that. You know, we want you to experience every bit of what San Francisco has to offer. And, you know, it certainly opened my eyes, gave me a new perspective on life in, in all shapes. Um, and yeah, really, really grateful. I'll never forget that summer. Um, and I'm actually, I'm hoping, but I don't know when, I think I'm speaking for many people. I hope we'll be back on a plane to anywhere, um, but I certainly hope to be back in San Francisco um, for a short, short time at least to, um, to see the people that I missed back in 2018. It was character building. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's call it character building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Look, Shane, I'll, uh, I'll I'll finish up on in a, in a in a few minutes, but right, we're in the pandemic. Um, mental health obviously while before the pandemic it um you know things are obviously improving a bit but things are are are, are extremely bad now and there's going to be a massive effect of this repeated lockdown on people yeah everyone from all walks of life um because this is not good for us but what do you think can be done going forward we say to make people more aware of their feelings that will result in them being more aware of, of, of mental health. Obviously, you know, I suppose without a doubt, it's, it's education in schools, yeah. well-being workshops. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a massive thing and I, I'm glad to see it being, you know, started at least. I think it certainly, and I would love to push it to, to be in the curriculum in, in years to come. It certainly has to be something like that, you know, and when I speak about and think about, you know, the fourth year, not talking probably down, but fourth year geography trips and all this kind of that you know it's just not going to stand to you when you're going into the, a, a part in your life in fifth and sixth year in particular when you're going into kind of a hugely pressurized environment and having to make decisions all about what's your next step are you going to college what's your next career and all this sort of stuff like an awful lot of pressure and um, so to be able to kind of educate kind of people from an early age to have those tools and resources would be a huge thing that i would certainly push for after that then of course is the, is the services i think again i say i could go on for days about the, the lack of services and what is absolutely needed to be done and will need to be done over these, um, over these next kind of, kind of days, weeks, months and years um, because it's only going to get worse as you said, people are going to come out of this pandemic and be, you know, what what has happened. There, there's going to be an awful lot of, uh, I would say, issues around mental health um, and then even stripping it back to the most, and again, as I say, the most simplistic of things, the smallest of gestures, just doing your own thing in terms of looking after your own corner, the smallest gesture. So the likes of, you know, a little text, a little phone call, a little chat with your mate, all those little things you wouldn't believe. And I'm an example of that. When I was going through the most difficult times, it was the most simple of things I'd spoken about in the book of, you know, Paul Flynn coming over to me, pat me on the back. When I come back into Dublin Senior Setup saying, good to see you back, back, mate. And that was the biggest thing for me. You know, a little text from my sister, a little kind of phone call, a little kind of, you know, positive comment from someone as I'm walking by them on the street. Just don't forget those little gestures because we're all going through this difficulty, you know, together. Um, and I would say just to be mindful of that. Um, 
you know, from a from a very, very simplistic nature. So education services and then just simple kind of gestures that you can do and take care of um, in your everyday life. Then. The million dollar question, okay, I asked everyone this and kind of put them on the spot. Um, what does the future hold for you? Who knows? <laughs> What's that? Who, yeah, there, there's the answer. Yeah, who knows? Um, enjoyment in, in whatever I do. In whatever I do, I, I think of I've come from a place where, um, you know, I didn't get to enjoy life, unfortunately. Um, I wasn't enjoying life, I, sh- I should say. So whatever I go into, I'm absolutely, you know, um, driven to be successful in whatever walk of life I go into. But um, a massive, massive thing for me is enjoying what I'm doing. Um, and that's, to put it in simple words, yeah, enjoyment. Do you dream to dream walk up the steps of the Hogan stand again? That's uh, without that, doubt, that, I suppose, is, is, is a dream of yours. That would be an enjoyable um, journey to take up those Hogan stand steps again, yeah, and I hopefully uh, hopefully will achieve that, uh, amongst other things as well. So. Brilliant, brilliant. Look, I, uh, I'll wrap it up there, um, Shane. I, I appreciate it, taking time out. I know we, we covered a good bit there. Um, I think we, we delved into a huge amount, and I'm looking forward to to read the, the book I haven't gotten around to it yet I'm still very bad at reading atrocious <laughs> oh my god the, the, uh, the audible is coming out in, in a couple of months so maybe stick around for that actually yeah if you, I'll actually wait for that so because that's uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very good at getting through audibles um, <laughs> look Shane I appreciate it uh, you know, we, we, we put this in the diary a couple months ago um, and it's, it's great to, to bring you sit down hopefully we'll meet up for a drink or a coffee down the line um, yeah look, Best look at everything going forward and thanks very much for coming on Inside View Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Shane. I think it's very honest, very open. I think we had great insight into you know into the difficulty he was experiencing at the time and hope either you or, or your relative or someone you might know, you know, might be able to take something from it. That is all from us on this week's podcast. Please, please do get in contact with the show um, or do, do get in contact with On The Ball Team Building if we can help you in any way possible. Um, we can help you or we can help your sports team or your corporate team. Please do let us know. We have a wide range of team building activities and team building offers that will you know, that be able to fit into what you're looking for. You'll find us on social media. You'll find us on Instagram. Firstly, it's at underscore on the ball team building over on Facebook. It's on the ball team building over on Twitter. It's at we're on the ball two. That's the digit two. You'll find us on LinkedIn on the ball team building and you'll also find us on TikTok. It's on the ball team team building. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week. We have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember cred on fame. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.